preacher was on his deathbed, and he invited his lawyer and his congressman to come sit with him during his dying moments. When they arrived in the room, he, he asked one of them to be on his right side and one to be on his left side, and there they sat for a good while. Finally, the lawyer spoke up and said, Preacher, you invited us here. Is there a reason you wanted us to be here at this time? And the preacher said, Yes. My Lord died between two thieves, and I want to go out as much like him as I can. <laughs> you know, we can laugh about death, but in all honesty, death is a subject at the very least that gives us mixed emotions. Death is, is a subject matter that we can be uncomfortable talking about. And for some of us, death is a more real conversation than others. But when we get to the book of Philippians, nobody is re more realistic about death than Paul was in chapter 1. You have to remember, as we talked about last week, here in Philippians chapter 1, Paul's in prison. He's been brought to Rome as a political prisoner. He is going to stand trial before Caesar. And he doesn't know if he's going to be exonerated or executed. He's waiting that opportunity to present his defense. And he's waiting for that pronouncement of guilt or innocence. He doesn't know exactly which way it's going to go. But he knows he can rejoice either way. So we just read there in Philippians chapter 1 where, where Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And what you can take away from that simple passage is that there can be joy in both living and in dying. That's the implication of what Paul is saying. And this morning, as we continue our study of joy in the context of this great book called Philippians, we want to consider how is it that we can have joy in death? How is it that death can be a joyful experience for us just like living can? And what we want to do today is flesh that out. How is it that Paul can call death a gain? that death can be far better than living in this life. But before we dive into that, we need to notice a couple of things that, that Paul infers or Paul implies about death here in these words in Philippians chapter 1. And the first thing I want you to notice is that Paul indicates that death is not the end for mankind. When Paul spoke about death here, he did not speak about it in terms of finality. When he spoke about death, he equated it to a departure. For me to depart and be with Christ, he said. That is interesting language. The, the, the word, the Greek word that's translated depart here, it derives from the Greek word that also means to loosen. And it depicts the loosening of something so that it can move on. It's the word they used back then to refer to that moment when a, ship's, when a ship is unmoored from the dock so that it can set sail for its next destination. It's also the word they used at that time to refer to when you spend the night in a tent somewhere while you're traveling, and the next morning you get up and, and, and you bind that tent back together and get ready to leave to go somewhere else. The word depart here 
has with it this understanding that it's a transitional phase. That you're loosening something so that you can depart and go somewhere else. That's the language that Paul uses when he makes reference to death here. So when Paul referred to death as a departure, he was indicating that death is not the end of the journey. It's a transitional state. It's where we transfer from this life to the next life. You see, we are made up of two distinct parts. We're made up of a body and a soul. One of these parts will stop existing one day, but one of these parts will exist eternally. So I want to draw your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 for just a moment. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and the very first two verses of that chapter that Paul has these words to say. He says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, he's referring to the physical body, if that tent which is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. So our body is that tent, that earthly home that will be destroyed one day. And that building from God, that that house not made with hands, that eternal heavenly dwelling, that's a reference to the imperishable, glorified, resurrected, spiritual state in which our souls will exist for all eternity. This physical body will cease to exist, but our soul will not. And understanding this is important because Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Jesus told many parables in his ministry that depict, uh, uh, that really, that indicate that the next life is going to be inaugurated by uh, a universal judgment. So you can go to Matthew chapter 13, and he's got the parable of the wheat and the weeds, the parable of the good fish and the bad fish. And then you can go to Matthew chapter 25, and he's got the parable of the ten women and the parable of the sheep and the goats. And all of these parables depict a separation. The wheat is separated from the weeds. The good fish are separated from the bad fish. The wise women are separated from the unwise or foolish women. And the sheep are separated from the goats. And in all of these parables, they're depicting this day in which separation occurs, this day on which judgment is meted out. And Jesus spent a lot of time on this topic because he wanted us to be aware that there is a pending judgment, that we will face our final destination after that judgment. And every person will receive either everlasting life or eternal condemnation. Now I want you to notice what Jesus said in John chapter 5. Verses 24 through 29 of John chapter 5. In John 5, beginning in verse 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who will hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 
Jesus made it very simple, very plain, very easy for us to understand. Everyone will be judged. No one can escape it, not even those who have already given up this earthly tent. Everyone will be judged. And there are conditions for receiving everlasting life. And if you fail to meet those conditions, then you automatically receive eternal condemnation. And the message is, prepare accordingly. See, the whole point is this. Physical death is not the end of our existence. We, just, we don't go into permanent annihilation. We face a day of judgment, and there is a second life after that that has no end. And it either will be lived out in heaven in the presence of God, or it will be lived out in hell under a barrage of torment. So Paul, when he used the language of departure, he indicated that death is not the end. It's a transfer where you live out the second part. Another thing that we can infer from what Paul has to say about death here in this passage is that death should not be feared by the Christian. When Paul said in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 23, my desire is to, part, is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, he wasn't just saying that there's something that follows death. He, he was also saying that he can be absolutely certain about where he was going to spend eternity. He wasn't like John Glenn, the famed astronaut who was the first American to orbit the earth back in 1962. John Glenn was reportedly asked what he was thinking about while he was waiting on the launch pad to be launched into space. And he said, I felt exactly how you would feel if you were getting ready to launch and knew you were sitting on, t on top of two million parts, all built by the lowest bidder on a government contract. That's not a lot of confidence. But Paul had confidence. Paul knew exactly where he was going. In fact, when we get, according to history, it appears Paul was released from this imprisonment, that Paul was exonerated. And if you go on and read the rest of Scripture, you'll get to the book of 2 Timothy where Paul is in prison again. And in, the, in 2 Timothy, Paul doesn't have such a positive outlook on his uh, escape of judgment. He really felt like he was going to die at that point. But if you read 2 Timothy, that same confidence that he has here about his future in heaven is spoken there in the fourth chapter when he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is a crown of righteousness laid up Paul knew where he was going. He was certain of his eternal destination. And the truth is that you and I can have that kind of assurance, that kind of certainty as well. We can know where we're going. If you return to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 with me, you'll, you'll look at verse 5. Paul said that God gave us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come guaranteeing that heavenly dwelling that we talked about a moment ago. Similar language is found in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 14, where Paul identified the Spirit as the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So Paul refers to the Holy Spirit on two different occasions as a guarantee or a deposit. The Greek term 
that's being used there is a financial term that refers to a first installment or a down payment that is paid out as a pledge of faithfulness to a commitment between people. We understand that. We understand down payments and deposits. We make a deposit, we make a down payment on, on major purchases in our lives as a sign of good faith that we will uphold our end of the contract, our end of the agreement. And God is essentially doing the same thing. As one author summarized, the spirit given as a pledge is God's guarantee to us that every promise he has made, he will fulfill. The ultimate promise being heaven. That means that the Holy Spirit as our deposit or as our guarantee or our pledge, whichever term you prefer, it is, the Holy Spirit is intended to create confidence in our salvation. And that confidence can be yours and can be mine as long as we receive the Spirit according to God's terms and as long as we keep the Spirit according to God's design. You go back to Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 where Peter preached the first gospel sermon and the instructions he gave were repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That gift is this deposit we're talking about right now. Think about it. At what point does Peter indicate that one receives the forgiveness of their sins as well as the gift of the Holy Spirit, the deposit? It's when he or she is baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That's how you receive the indwelling Spirit who serves as your depositor guarantee. So if you want to be certain about your eternity, you've got to start there. You have to receive the Spirit the way that God says you receive it. But Scripture does indicate that you can grieve the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 4 and that you can quench the Spirit in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And without going into too much detail here, I think those things happen, that grieving and that quenching happens when after receiving the Spirit, we fail to follow the Spirit's lead by refusing to conform to the will of God, by refusing to produce the fruits that are in keeping with our, uh, repent, with our repentance, with our conversion. And, and so we can fail to to live out our lives faithfully, and therefore we can give up that salvation that we have first received. And so here's the thing. Our confidence relies on our, our, how we receive forgiveness and the gift of the Spirit and how we keep it by fulfilling the Lord's will and by producing the fruit that He's called us to produce. Does the presence of the Holy Spirit mean you'll never mess up? Absolutely not. Does the presence of the Holy Spirit mean that you can never lose your salvation? Certainly not. The presence of the Holy Spirit simply means that you have a source of confidence in your salvation. As long as the Spirit is in you, you are in Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in this beautiful section where Paul talks about the resurrection, he says this, And Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And the point is this, Christ secured victory over death when he rose from the grave. And as long as we are in him, that victory is being applied to us. Here's the whole point I'm trying to make. We know it's erroneous to adopt a theology of once saved, always saved. But I believe it's equally erroneous to adopt a theology of always trying, never sure. Because Paul knew where he was going and his confidence in his eternal destination never wavered. I think Paul would be uncomfortable with the way we answer the question, 
do you know where you're going? Because right now, if I took a poll, do you know where you're going? Some of you would answer yes. But a great many of us would say, I think so, or I hope so. I'm not trying to put us in the position of God, of casting judgment on ourselves, but God didn't create salvation in such a way that we can't have confidence in it. We need to become a people who have confidence in our status with our Lord. Because if we don't have confidence in it, then guess what? Maybe something needs to change in your life. At the end of this lesson, we're going to offer an invitation. If you don't have confidence in your salvation right now, then you might need to respond to that invitation and, and correct, repent of whatever it is that's keeping you from having confidence. That's why one reason why we gather. That is definitely a reason we offer an invitation every week because if you don't have that level of confidence, you don't want to go another minute. You don't, we heard sirens a moment ago, didn't we? I, I, that wasn't just my ears ringing, was it? And I was sitting there trying to process, am I just hearing a, a tornado siren? Because apparently it's supposed to be clear weather today, right? Like not, not, well, not supposed to be stormy today. Or am I hearing the trumpet call? You ever felt that before? You hear something, you start wondering, okay, is that it? Is that the last trumpet? And I was sitting there as, as Jack is leading us in communion. I was sitting there thinking, well, if it is the trumpet call, what a great time to go. What a great time to go. Are you confident of that, though? In the midst of the chaos that is this world, and I'll get to that in a minute as well, in the chaos of this world, shouldn't we want Christ to come back right now so that we don't have to spend another day amidst coronavirus? And we don't have to spend another day in, uh, in this society where we can't trust the, the, the news and we can't trust the politicians anymore. Wouldn't it be great for Christ to come back right now so that we can spend the rest of our time with him, that we can depart and be with him? But the issue is, where would you go if he came back right now? And do you have confidence in departing and be with him like Paul did? That's the question you've got to confront yourself with right now. And Scripture says we can have such confidence because of the Spirit. With that being said, I want you to consider with me this morning why we can have joy in death. Why does Paul say that leaving this life is far better than staying in it? If you know Paul's story, you can go back to the book of 2 Corinthians and go to the 12th chapter, and, and you may recall that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he spoke about someone he knew who 14 years earlier was caught up to the third heaven. He didn't know if it was by body or by spirit, but was caught up to the third heaven. And while there, witnessed things that he could not talk about. Now many scholars believe Paul was referring to himself. That he himself is the one who was caught up to the third heaven and witnessed these things. It's because if you go back to chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, Paul is engaged in some rhetorical boasting. Boasting about his own hardships. Not because he was arrogant, it was rhetorical. In chapter 12, the very first verse before he talks about being caught up to the third heaven, he says, I'm going to continue to boast rhetorically. But this time I'm going to do it about visions and revelations. And so it's quite possible that Paul is talking about himself using third-person language, and he himself had caught a glimpse of heaven 
I imagine that you and me are both the type that would say, man, if I got a glimpse of heaven, it would change how I live on earth. If I could just see it with my own eyes, I would do everything so different. If I could see that glorious place, I'm certain it would affect how I do things today. You ever seen a magician? You, you ever seen an illusionist? You ever watched one of these shows on TV and they do something so outlandish, that you're, but they act like it's real and you're trying to figure out how they did it? Our eyes can be deceived, can they not? Just because we see something doesn't mean it changes the way we do things. The Scripture tells us what to expect with heaven. While Paul, or whoever he's referring to, may not have been able to describe what he saw, John was able to. The Apostle John was given a vision on the island of Patmos in the book of Revelation, and he was told to write it down, to share it with us. And when we journey to the book of Revelation, you get to the chapters 21 and 22, we get this glimpse of heaven. And it's hard for us to read between the lines sometimes of what that vision is, of, of what heaven is really being depicted as, because we, we read that there are streets of gold and gates made out of single pearls and, and all these precious stones and gems, and, and they don't always resonate with us too well. I, I don't wear a lot of jewelry. I, I wear one ring and one bracelet, and that's it. The bracelet's made out of yarn. It's not even precious metal. It's precious because Micah made it and just wanted me to wear it, so I'll wear it. But we don't resonate with those precious gems and stones that much. So how are we going to accept that heaven is far better? It's not like it's Disney World. It's not like it's a resort out in the Caribbean. Well, here's what I want you to think about. I want you to read between the lines of the description of heaven. Because here's why heaven's far better. Here's why death is a gain. It's because death, death results in rest. In Revelation chapter 14, in part of this vision that John has received, he hears a voice say this. Revelation chapter 14, and it's verse uh, 13, I believe. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. That voice described heaven as a place of permanent rest. But what kind of rest are we talking about? I got a feeling a great many of you are going home this afternoon. You're getting your Sunday afternoon nap. That's what I'm good for, preparing you for a nap. But we're not talking about sleep. We're not going to need sleep in heaven because we're no longer going to be confined to these mortal bodies. This tent's going to be gone. It doesn't need that kind of rest. And Scripture declares in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52, that we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So because we will be changed and we will enter heaven with an imperishable body, I don't think there's going to be a need for any sleep. In fact, when you get to Revelation chapter 21, John's going to describe heaven as a place that has no night there. I know you can sleep during the day, but nighttime is our typical sleeping time. I think that all helps us understand that this isn't a rest that amounts to sleep. We don't need sleep in heaven. Not only that, I don't think this is a reference to inactivity, that we're not going to do anything. I don't know exactly what all we're going to be doing in heaven, but one thing is clear, we're not going to be doing nothing. You can go to Revelation chapter 22 and verse 3. 
It says that the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in heaven and his servants will worship him. If nothing else, our time and eternity is going to be spent worshiping God. And I don't think we're ever going to grow tired of it. See, I think the rest that's being talked about here, the permanent rest, is a reference to relief. Think about the theological significance of rest. Do you realize how important rest was to God? That he demanded it in one of his top five commands in Mosaic Law? Not only that, God so demanded rest that he prescribed the death penalty for anybody who failed to observe that day of rest. That's a pretty significant thing to say, hey, this is my top five, and hey, if you fail to observe it, guess what? Why did God care about rest so much? I think it's because rest demonstrates our trust in and reliance on God. When you rest, spiritually speaking, you're relinquishing control. You're saying, God's got this. I don't have to stay up and worry about this. I don't have to spend my time working on this because God's in control. See, when we get to heaven, when we see God in all of his glory and we have an understanding of everything he's ever done, it's going to bring such a great relief to us. In heaven, we will experience perfect rest as we reside in the place where evil no longer exists, a place where death no longer dominates, a place where pain will no longer persist, a place where temptation no longer threatens. Can you envision the relief you will feel when you enter a space where you no longer have to worry, you no longer have to be afraid, where you will never have a reason to be frustrated or burdened again, a place where you'll never have anything that causes doubts to arise in you again? That's perfect, that is perfect relief from the pressures of this life. That is the permanent rest we will receive. But not only does death result in rest, it results in removal from this world. I want you to listen to a few descriptions that are given about heaven in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. John described heaven as a city laid out as a square where its length, breadth, and height are equal. Actually, that's a cube. John also described heaven as a place where nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. He described heaven as a place, as I've already mentioned, where the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and the servants will, will worship Him. And then he, all of these descriptions that I've mentioned, plus more, they indicate that heaven is going to be a place of perfection, a place absent in purity, a place where we will serve God the way He deserves to be served. Heaven will be a place of absolute perfection. But this is not the first time God created a place of absolute perfection. That's what Eden was intended to be. But we sinned. And because we sinned, we were removed from Eden, from the place of perfection. But here's the beautiful thing about salvation. God's going to reverse what happened way back in Genesis chapter 3. Because of what Jesus did for us, because 
because of his sacrifice, those who are washed in his blood will be removed from this earth and returned to an Eden-like existence. One of the fascinating things about Revelation 21 and 22 is how much of Eden is implied in heaven. So, for instance, there's no death in heaven, just like there was no death in Eden. There's no curse in heaven, just like there was no curse in Eden. In heaven, God will dwell with his people like God walked with Adam and Eve in Eden. And in heaven, the tree of life will be there just like it was in Eden. You see, when, when this world comes to its end, when Christ returns, we're returning, we're being removed from this place and returned to a place of perfection. There's two things that won't be in heaven. They're not specifically mentioned in the text of Revelation, but they're worth mentioning. The serpent's not going to be in heaven. We're told in Revelation chapter 20 where Satan's going to be spending his eternity, and it's not heaven. That means the one who deceived man, the one who initiated sin in this world, won't be in that place of perfection. Something else won't be there either. The tree of life is going to be there, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That tree that Adam and Eve were tempted to eat from, that tree that they looked at and decided, hey, this will make us like God. That tree that was the initial source of idolatry, the desire to replace God with someone or something else, that tree won't be there either. See, when we arrive in heaven, we're going to see who sits on the throne, and we're going to never desire to replace him or dethrone him. So in that place of perfection, there will be no serpent. There will be no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There will only be this desire to surround ourselves around that throne and be in the presence of the one who sits on it, because we're finally going to get it. We're finally going to understand that he's in charge and that he's supreme. that he loves us and that we love him. So when that last trumpet sounds and we meet the Lord in the air, we're going to be removed from this place. We're going to leave behind all of the evil and sin and chaos and problems that the world has created because of sin. We're going to get out of this fallen state and return to a perfect state. We're going to leave coronavirus behind. We're going to leave racism behind. We're going to leave politics behind. We're going to leave terrorism behind. We're going to leave everything that is horrible behind. That's why death is far better. That's why going to heaven is far better. It doesn't have the stuff down here that drives us insane and is, makes life painful and difficult. Death results in removal from this fallen world, and death results in permanent residency in God's presence. John described heaven as a place coming down from God and a place where God will dwell with men and they shall be his people in the first couple of verses of Revelation chapter 21. In the Garden of Eden, the relationship between God and man was unique. God spoke directly to Adam and Eve. God even walked in the garden. To some degree, God came down out of heaven to the garden to interact with man in a very special way. But God has not been able to dwell with us in the same way. 
Our sin has separated him from us. But in heaven, God will not be separated from us anymore. Once again, he'll be able to dwell with us. So heaven will be a place where that intimacy that was experienced in Eden will exist again. And I think one way this is really demonstrated is in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 22 where John described heaven as a place without a temple because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now we've never operated with the temple. We read about the temple, but, but that's not something we ever had to operate with. And the temple was a unique structure. It was a segregated structure. It had all these different layers to it that you could enter based on certain traits of yours. The centerpiece of the temple was the Holy of Holies. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And if you remember, the Ark of the Covenant represented the very presence of God. And based on factors that you had no control of in life, it would determine how close you could get to that ark. So if you were not a Jew, the closest you could get to the ark was this outside court called the court of the Gentiles. The closest you could get to the presence of God was actually outside the temple. Your ethnicity determined how close you could get to God. Next, there was this area inside the main temple courts called the court of the women. Your gender determined how close you could get to God. Beyond that, if you were a Jewish male, you could enter the court of Israel, where you could actually see where the sacrifices were being made. But at this point, your family of origin dictated how close you could get to God. Because you couldn't go any further unless you were from one specific tribe. That's when you would enter the court of the priests. But only if you were a Levite who operated in the priesthood could you enter this court where the sacrifices were made and where priestly duties were fulfilled. But there's still one more layer. The Holy of Holies. The most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant set. Only one man could ever enter that room. You had to be one man out of all of the nation of Israel to enter this space. And you could only do it on one day of the year. It was the high priest who would go in there on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle blood on the, the top of that altar. And that's the only time someone could get that close to God. The temple depicted the relationship with God as being something that had barriers. There were Factors beyond your control, whether it was your ethnicity, your gender, your family of origin, or even your occupation, those things would keep you at a distance from God. But in heaven, there is no temple. God is the temple. The God whose scriptures, who Revelation 21 says will dwell with us. And while that system of courts reinforced the idea that God was distant and that there were limitations on how close one could get to him, in heaven, where there is no temple, there are no courts, there are no separation, it indicates that heaven is a place where distance from God is eliminated. I had the luxury last night of 
conducting a wedding ceremony. It was 16 years ago when I got married. And I remember the greatest, the greatest part about getting married was that I didn't have to take Sarah back to her dorm or back to her house at the end of the day. There was not a, a separation at the end of the day. That was the best part. And then I had this little girl named Micah who just gave me an evil eye for mentioning her. Pictured on the screen is Micah with two of our dogs. This is about five years ago at least. I had just gotten home from work that day and had to go back out to the car to get something. Micah was trying to figure out a way to follow me. My dogs were watching me. Sarah snapped this picture. And the first time I saw it, the one idea I had is all my dogs and my daughter wanted to do was be where I was. All they wanted to do was to be in the presence of her father and their master. This week, four of the past five nights, I have been uh, engaged in something that didn't allow me to get home until about 10 o'clock. I got home just in time to put Micah in bed. Didn't get to spend any time with her. She's been miserable because she wasn't able to be in the presence of her father. I should feel that same degree of misery until I get to heaven and I get to be in the presence of my heavenly father. All I should desire and want to do is to be where my master is and where my father is for the rest of eternity. That should be my desire. And that's the ultimate reason there's joy in death because it draws us one step closer to an eternity in the presence of the one who created us, into the presence of the one in whose image we were made, into the presence of the one who died for us, into the presence of the one who loves us like no other. Paul viewed death as a gain and said it was far better because he understood these things about heaven. And this morning, that's what I want to pass on to you. I want you to realize that death is indeed something we can rejoice in because as Christians, it takes us into the next step, the next step towards a permanent rest, the next step towards a permanent residency in heaven with God, the next step towards being removed from this broken place. And today, if you're not prepared to go there, I invite you to make the decisions that you need to make to do that. If you're not a child of God, if you haven't received salvation, if you have not received the Spirit as we talked about earlier, then I invite you to confess that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, to repent of your sins and, be, and to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. And if you've made that decision, but you still, right now, sitting here today, cannot be certain that you're going to heaven, then come. Confess whatever you need to confess. Correct whatever you need to correct. Repent of whatever you need to repent of. And let us help you. Because the trumpet didn't sound earlier but it's going to. And we don't know when it will. It may be before I even conclude this lesson. So what do you need to do to make sure you're ready for that?
Right now is your opportunity to do it. While together we stand and sing.